This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Lucas Miles. So he is a pastor, author, speaker, and radio host. And he's also been syndicated in articles across both political and religious news outlets. So we're talking like Newsmax, The Blaze, Flashpoint, Fox News, The Washington Times, CBN, The Christian Post, and there are others out there as well. So in addition to his newest book, which is really the center point of our conversation today, Woke Jesus, The False Messiah Destroying Christianity, Lucas is the author of the best-selling book. It was the number one best-selling book for a long time, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. And he's got other clean book. So he has another one called good God and he's done a whole lot of uh, different things. But the interesting thing about this particular conversation is I heard him on John Cooper's podcast, Cooper stuff. And I was like, dude, I got to talk to this guy because he has a way of cogently explaining things that are very, very complicated. And so in this particular podcast, we talk about, you know, how I became a pastor and all that, but then we really dig into the book. We do some definitional work at the beginning. You know, what is woke? What is woke or progressive or conscious Christianity? What is liberation theology? How does that relate to black liberation theology? What about Gnosticism and how does that affect everything? But we we talk about some things in terms of the the goals of communism and how they manifest in modernity. That's really one of the hinge points of the interview and the hinge points of the book as well. But we talked about how proponents of woke Christianity, they will twist scripture around and are they doing it because they, they're dumb or are they doing it because they're nefarious? We talk about groups like the SBC bringing CRT into the fold. We also spend some time talking about the fact that he names names in his book. And he didn't do that in the last one, but in Woke Jesus, he names names of progressive Christians that have done kind of woke progressive type things. And we, we, we name names in this podcast as well, so you're going to have to stick around to check those out. But then we really get practical about what are Christians to do that go to these churches with some of these woke or progressive pastors, or at least progressive-leaning pastors. What are they to do? What about people that don't go to those churches? Like people like me that have a public platform, am I to you know call these people out like I did Andy Stanley earlier this year? Uh, but then uh, towards the end, we talked about education and you know how can we you know, educate our children. But there's also a quote in the book that I literally told him to his face. This is about an hour into the interview. I told him that this quote from his book made me want to puke because I disagreed with it so much. So you'll have to stick around to check that out. But guys, I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Lucas Miles, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've done a bunch of these interviews before, but I have a goal today, Lucas. Are you ready to hear it? Let's hear it. I want this to be the most memorable interview of your entire life. I have, I'm a small goals guy. Okay. So that's just a little one. So okay. uh, I'm going to do my part, but you have to carry some weight as well. If that's all right. I'll do my best. Okay. So let's just ease into it. Find a nice soft place to land. You are a professional Christian. I don't know if you knew that you should put that on a business card, but you are a pastor of a church. You, you do sermons and you write books and all that type of stuff. So at what point in your life did you decide, you know what, I'm going to take this Christian thing pro. Uh, I was 15. 15 years old. And, um, I don't, I don't normally share this on most shows, but I'll give it to you. I was, uh, I just broke up with a girlfriend and was at a youth conference. And, um, it was like my first relationship and was, was, you know, I had no idea what I was doing and, and was not a healthy thing by any means. And, uh, you know, I'm at this youth conference and, you know, speakers every day, thousand plus kids, you know, on a college campus as a high school kid, you're, you're there by yourself kind of for the first time without your parents and everything else, you know, for this event. And it was, it was great. And this speaker, his name was Mike. I don't remember his last name. He's a pastor in Illinois and he does this message 
And like the whole time, like I'm just edge of my seat, like just, you know, drawn in. He gets to the end of this message and he says, and this is like, this is a Church of Christ conference. Like this is mm. like, I mean, fairly traditional denomination. Um, we were the musical version of the Church of Christ, not the non-instrumental. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Um, yeah, we were, we were the wild ones. But, um, you know, and but there wasn't a lot of talk of the Holy Spirit or anything like that. This is about as charismatic as it got. He said, I'm going to I'm going to say a prayer and I'm going to ask that the Lord gives you somebody's name. And when you get home, that's somebody that you're supposed to like reach out to, you know? And so uh, I, I, I mean, I just, I was in and I, I closed my eyes and this girl's name comes in my head. And it was, it was a girl that was in my class. And like when I was at school, like, you know, we didn't have furries and, you know, trans mm. stuff. We had goth, you know, that was, <laughs> she, she was kind yeah. of in that vein, you know? And, uh, and so, um, just a lot of angst and we had a class together, didn't know her super well, but she just pops in my head. I get home and I, I go through the yearbook, you know, it's summertime and I find like her name and she had left a number. Like that's, you know, how you communicated with your classmates. Yeah. And, and so I end up just calling her when I get back and I said, Hey, you know, it's real awkward because I didn't have a lot of experience in calling girls. Um, and I was like, Hey, this is going to seem weird, but like I was at this thing and your name popped in my head and I kind of knew she was like, had a reputation of being, you know, at least agnostic, if not atheist. And, and I said like, I know this could sound strange, but I just feel like, is there anything like I can pray for you about? And that, that was just my line. And she just like starts crying and, and I'm going like, what did I do? <laughs> you know, like this is not starting well. And, and, uh, and, and she goes, what day was that? And I said, it was, it was Wednesday. She goes, okay. And she just like loses it again. And and she goes, what time? I said, I don't know, 8.30. And uh, she just is just weeping. I finally get her to stop. And I said, you know, what what's going on? Like, what's happening here? You know, again, I'm freshman in high school. And she goes, we got a call Wednesday night at 8.30 that my brother jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and killed himself. And like, I had no idea what to do. I don't know what I said. I ended up baptizing her about four years after that. But at that moment, I had nothing. I had no tools, nothing to access really other than I'll pray for you, you know, uh, I'm sorry, you know, kind of thing. I don't even remember how the call ended. But I knew that I heard God say something to me. And I was hooked. And and just that week, I felt a very strong call into ministry. And, you know, I... I, I questioned it a couple times, had some other interests in high school, you know, but really by the time I got to college, I was in, I started preaching at 17. So I'll be 44, I think this year. I always forget how old I am. <laughs> yeah. That's a problem. Um, but, uh, you know, so I've been doing this a while now, uh, but that was, that was really the beginning. Well, I appreciate you going into all that detail. And yeah, I guess after you turn like 30, all the other, it's like your birthday matters once every it's 10 years. It's all the years. same. Yeah, yeah it's, it's all you're relative. just measuring based upon degrees of back pain. That's right. that's really all that's happening from there <laughs> Absolutely. on Absolutely. Well, so th- there's a lot of stuff that we could have done. And in the preparation for this interview, just to be honest, I was like, okay, there's so many different rabbit trails we can go down, but I'm actually going to use your latest book, Woke Jesus, as the, I guess, center point and roadmap. Um, this book, Woke Jesus, The False Messiah, Destroying Christianity. Guys, that will be in the show notes, I'm going to tell you right up front, we're going to cover a lot of ground here in the next 60 minutes or so. We can't possibly cover everything that is in this very, very thin book. Guys, this is like a less than 200 page book. And if you take the notes out, it's even shorter. But we need to talk about this book again. It's 
you know, woke Jesus, the false Messiah destroying Christianity. I mean, could you go with a bolder title? You even have a picture of Jesus with a hammer and sickle on, on the front of the cover for those of you watching on YouTube and rumble. So just very, very quickly and basically give us the 30,000 foot overview. Why write yeah. this book and what's it about? You know, I think that the, the, the church by and large doesn't understand what's happening today. I, I think mm -hmm. that, you know, we have a general sense of like, you know, woke, bad Marxism, bad, but because most people don't know anything about the history of wokeism or the history of Marxism, they are completely unqualified to be able to have these conversations and to dismantle these things. And then we wonder why Christians, you know, um, you know, get accused of not being understanding or not, uh, you know, being in touch with culture or, um, you know, not being smart enough to be able to dive into these topics. And I don't think that you have to have, uh, um, you know, look, I'm, I'm by and large mostly self-taught. Uh, not that I didn't go to school, but most of my training in these things is is an immense amount of time reading. I mean, as you see in the book, I got 500 footnotes. Uh, I, I've read those books in there. That's not just me going through and grabbing a quote and pulling that out. You know, I'm I really believe in kind of getting in the material. But this book really, you know, to kind of sum it up, I, I set out to write what I believe, you know, is the definitive guide on understanding wokeism in the church, its history, the modern implications, and ultimately what's the roadmap for moving forward? What can we do about it? Um, I think that if the church doesn't figure this out now, uh, we are in for a rude awakening. And, you know, look, because, um, you know, I, I'm an optimist, God wins in the end, but that doesn't mean the church in America is always going to thrive. And we, we see these buildings over in Europe, you know, Germany, Italy used to be you know, major centers of Christian thought. Now all we have left are these like beautiful, you know, shells of old churches of these, you know, cathedrals and buildings. And they're amazing to look at. But when you really think about what they represent, they represent a time when the church was once thriving, where it's now dead and it's empty. And the only thing difference here in America, if we don't change this, is nobody's going to even recognize our buildings as churches. They'll go, oh, that must have been a bowling alley or that must have been, you know, because, yeah. you know, we, we've stopped even, you know, going in that direction. And so uh, we've got some work to do. I, I still believe we can turn this around, but um, we've got to understand it. Well, you're much more pessimistic than I am, but we'll we'll unpack that a little bit as we keep going. <laughs> as I was reading your your book, I, I was reminded of Eric Metaxas's book that he released last year, The Letter to the American Church. Yeah. And you and I have a mutual friend that is working on something that we can't talk about publicly yet that I think will be a, a good book that kind of goes in that same vein as those things. The thing that's important about this is definitions are so, so valuable. So if you're having a debate or if you're even having a discussion, if we can't agree, and here's a postmodern thought, if we can't agree on what things actually mean, then we can't actually have a discussion because everything's vapid at that point. So just real quickly here at the beginning, because I really want to dig into a lot of the contents of the book, I think we need to define some terms here. Yeah. And so let's start with, you know, the first word of the title of your book, Woke. Uh, when yeah. you appeared on John Cooper's Cooper Stuff podcast here recently, you actually helped me learn a very tight, brief, and cogent definition of woke. Because I had a note on my phone after that gal got just dump trucked for not being able to give a definition of woke and went, went viral. Yeah. I, I kind of made one on my phone so I could have it, but yours was way better. And I, I, it was something along the lines of a higher consciousness of supposed systemic oppression. Yeah. And that that's a lot of words that sound complicated, but would you say that that is a good tight definition, a higher consciousness of supposed systemic oppression? 
Yeah. So, so woke is sort of one of these, first of all, thanks for that. And, you know, um, let me, you know, love Cooper and, you know, I want to be Eric Metaxas when I grow up, he's the best. And (laughs) the other day, you know, see, and I've known Eric for a while, he's a friend, but like seeing my book and his book as the number one, number two book on, you know, this, this Christian list on Amazon was, was pretty rad. And so I won't tell you whose was, was number one that day, but, uh, (laughs) it was, it was pretty awesome to see that. So, um, but, uh, you know, yeah, wokeism and woke is sort of this thing that it, it, it's like one of those like pictures that when you like move, which side like this, when you look at it this way, it's Elvis. And then you look at it this way and it's, you know, it's Marilyn Monroe or something like that. It's like, you know, like wokeism, if you're talking about as a believer, as, as, as somebody who understands the dangers of it, it's in many ways, it's a euphemism for cultural Marxism. You know, that's that's simplistically what it is. Um, and and I think oftentimes it's a way of hiding this Marxist, you know, movement that's happening because we're calling it something that is, you know, uh, doesn't have the historical baggage that the word Marxist has. And so they've been able to disguise a lot, you know, through this. Um, but, but you're right. I, I've used this definition before from a you know, from the, the if if you are somebody who adheres to woke ideology, you would probably say uh, in a much more complicated way, it's a higher consciousness, a higher awareness of systemic oppression. I I don't believe in that definition because I think it's flawed, and so I put in there it's a higher consciousness or per, you know a perception of or hyper focus on a perceived systemic oppression. And so mm. it's it's not that there's really an oppression that's there. In fact, and again, I don't I don't give this on most podcast shows either. Because, but you you won me over before yeah. we got online oh, here. Yeah. So um, I uh, I have my 25th class reunion coming up. And uh, they, I've been on the planning committee for like three, you know, three times. So 15th, 20th, and now 25th. And there's actually, because of this book and because of a, a viral video that I spoke at a our local school board and the video's gotten like 500,000 views on TikTok or something like that, a bunch of my classmates saw it. There is now a protest <laughs> class reunion that they, and I had a class of about six or 700 people. So there's about 200 plus people attending a this is the reunion that will not be featured by Lucas Miles. You dorks. Uh, and and, uh, and they're donating all the funds to the local LGBT, you know, organization uh. or whatever. And so, like, you know, I'm trying to be they're, – they're basically canceling me for my own class reunion. But the reason why that's been referenced, as I understand and, – and I don't pay a lot of attention to this, but I, I say this because this is this perception issue – is that I did at the school board meeting, I talked about – that the the nature of wokeism, the nature of critical theory, is that it is trying to dismantle a perceived white hegemony, a perceived white power structure through the means of all of these you know Marxist ideologies that come afterwards. And and what people that don't understand this material, what they hear you saying is that I'm you know that that we as people addressing the dangers of wokeism, we're trying to protect a white hegemony. Mm. No. We don't believe in a white hegemony. It doesn't exist. It's why I'm not playing basketball for the Celtics right now, because that was my dream. And they have not called me. And Mm. because I'm not built for that, I don't have the ability to do that. And affirmative action did not help me be able to play point guard for them because at 5'10", I still wasn't tall enough or quick enough to be able to make it happen. And so, you know, there's not a white power structure that exists uh, um, you know, uh, systemically across the United States. This is a conspiracy theory of the left. Uh, but because, you know, you have to clarify these things because people hear this and because they've not studied it, they, you know, all they hear is you're trying to protect a white power structure. And obviously, you know, it's just, it's a fairy tale that the left is believing in in order to push these ideas. 
Well, Lucas, you give a lot of examples in the book. That's going to be one of several more commercials for this book in this podcast, guys. You have to go and get it because there's a lot of work that needs to be done to understand some of these things. But specifically, I'm going to leave some of these definitional things out because we got to dig in a little bit more. But in your book, you give a a, a loose definition of woke slash progressive slash conscious Christianity. And so the quote here is, woke Christianity, also known as conscious Christianity, is broad stroke terminology describing Christians who are intentionally conscious of a oppression, racism, and injustice. Now, the thing that I would add to that, oh, I'm not going to add to the definition, just add it to elucidate the point, is if I were to go out today looking for an opportunity to be offended, I guarantee you, it's like magic, Lucas. I'm, I'm like a magician. I would find it. I would absolutely find an opportunity. I remember when my university that I went to got a, uh, basically a department of racism, but they call it like cultural uh, department or something like that. I was like, oh, it's these people's job to go into every department and every classroom and look for oppression, racism, and injustice. And if they don't find any, they lose their jobs. So if I'm a betting man, I'm going to go out on a limb and say they're going to find a bunch of it because not only are they the best at finding it, they're the best bloodhounds for these ideologies, but they're also the ones that can help you, quote unquote, do the work of being an anti-racist or being a non-bigoted piece of garbage. And basically, if you're a white Christian, straight, cisgender, male, like they are the most qualified people to get you out of all of those, you know, substructures or something like that. But the the thing that's the most nefarious, which is going to be a center point of our conversation today, is it's the fact that it's kind of infiltrated the church. Okay, so that's my signal to what's coming up later. But we still have just a couple of definitional things to go. I'm not even going to have you define critical race theory because it it. It requires a discussion about critical theory, critical legal studies, the Frankfurt School, yeah. all of that. You talk about it in the book. But liberation theology, yeah. liberation theology, black liberation theology, is it possible to encapsulate those ideologies quickly? Because yeah. I don't have a specific question, but I think we need to know that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, short version is that there was a, there was a big movement after the Enlightenment to uh, basically to, to create or to manufacture a Jesus that was uh, was more acceptable to the logic, reason, and scientific method, you know, uh, value structure of the post-Enlightenment period, uh, which meant downplaying the miraculous, downplaying his divinity, and out pop these kind of, you know, Jesus biographies that were a series of just extra-biblical kind of fabrications, uh, trying to explain away some of the miracles in the Bible, and and really that elevated Jesus more as this great, you know, social reformer or or kind of humanistic prophetic voice or apostolic, you know, uh, prophet, but not the savior of the world. And this this was um, basically uh, was able to morph itself, sort of amalgamate with a lot of Marxist ideology in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. And out of this, what we had in the 1950s was it finally made its way into the Catholic Church in Latin America through a priest named Gutierrez. And Gutierrez, you know, really was the the sort of the origination, if you will, of this idea of, of liberation theology, which is basically Catholicism plus Marxism. That then jumps to America about the same time. They kind of were developing almost simultaneously in, in like tandem tracks and and in the form of what's known as black liberation theology, which is, again, is, is uh, you know, this, this uh, you know, black evangelical Christianity mixed with, you know, this Marxist thought. Um, you know, a lot of W.E.D. Du Bois, um, you know, Malcolm X kind of, you know, frameworks that were added there. You know, Marxism sees the world as see it see it filters injustice through the lens of material possessions and, and, and labor and work and these things, uh, social class. 
um, uh, liberation theology filters the injustice through rich versus poor. That's kind of the oppressor oppressed, you know, framework there. Black liberation theology is a little bit more interesting. It filters the world and injustice through the lens of white theology is the hegemic, hegemic power structure that's there. And James Cone was the founder of this one. And then, and then black experience is the thing that's being oppressed through this. And so for James Cone, it was all about killing the, the white Jesus, killing white theology, um, and these things that kind of come through with that. Well, Lucas, I think that automatically leads to a discussion of Gnosticism, which is the last thing that I wanted you to define for us, because Gnosticism is not just something that happened a couple of thousand years ago. It's something that's manifesting today. I remember yeah. a year, maybe two or three back, uh, Vodi Bauckham, you know, the the bear of Joe, Vodi Bauckham, he... Um, he did a thing called ethnic Gnosticism. He he did a presentation and that was the first time people had maybe even heard the term Gnosticism, mm -hmm. but it's basically like your immutable characteristics that you didn't choose that you're somehow taking pride in and ignoring that it's a sin. It's this lived experience uh, type of knowledge where that gives you some sort of an extra ability to exegete scripture or to make uh, suggestions for public policy. But if you could kind of give us a, a basic definition yeah. of Gnosticism, but also how it's impacting modern Christianity. Yeah, so Gnosticism essentially is one of the first two heresies to face the church. You had the Judaizers and the Gnostics. Judaizers are referenced in the New Testament. Gnostics are, are, are implied or referred to, but not by name ever in the New Testament. And so, you know, we see language, whether it's, uh, um, you know, be in 1 John or, you know, some people would argue even in Hebrews or Galatians that, that kind of references these things a little bit. But, um, but, you know, for the most part, this is something that was kind of post-New Testament that really, you know, rose up to the to the uh, to the level to where it was really um, uh, jeopardizing orthodoxy within the church at a time. Uh, there was an early thinker, Irenaeus, who was in the second century, uh, that that wrote a book called Against Heresies. That's kind of the definitive, you know, most trusted early work on Gnosticism. A lot of the early Gnostic writings did not survive, but what we have is a lot of the early uh, rebuttals to Gnosticism that were able to kind of, you know, uh, retrofit, you know, what Gnostics believe or kind of reverse engineer what they believed from that. It was a mixture of Judaism, Christianity, and Zoroastrianism. So basically from the beginning, they were, they were, um, uh, you know, basically alchemists. They were, um, they amalgamated these different, you know, beliefs together. Uh, there, there was a sense that um, there wasn't a unified orthodox, you know, Christianity has what we call orthodoxy, right teaching, because, you know, we we had the, the councils and creeds to fight these things out and really come up with definitions about what is Christian and what is not based upon a, a, the singular teaching of scripture. Uh, Gnostics obviously did not have that. It was much more sporadic. So there was a lot of different camps. Uh, in Augustine's day, he battled the Manichees, which were a form of Gnosticism. But at its base level, there was a belief essentially that the physical uh, was rejected. It was evil. It was uh, it was oppressive, and so there was a belief that the Creator God uh, Yahweh, when He created man, that He took pre-existent spirits and He placed them in a physical body, and as a result, when He did that, it created us into. We basically were placed in systemic oppression by human flesh because we were once free in the spirit, and now we're subjected to flesh and limitations. And so all of life then is about trying to find liberation. And this is a little bit of anachronistic, you know, language I'm applying back here. But but essentially what we're seeing is that that the goal of Gnosticism was to get a higher knowledge, a, a, a raised consciousness, very similar to what we see in modern wokeism, 
uh, of how do we get liberated? Now, liberation for them was not about, you know, it wasn't this Marxist concept yet. You know, we could we would argue Marx and Hegel were Gnostics, not that not that Gnostics were Marxists. You know, it doesn't go that direction. And and so but they were they, the, the goal was that Jesus came not he was not God. He was either a spirit, according to some. Uh, who appeared in human flesh. He was an apparition. Uh, he was a man that sort of reached a divine state through, you know, revelation and secret knowledge. Um, but at any rate, he came that if we, you know, find this kind of secret knowledge that he had, then we find freedom from this creator God. And so Gnosticism kind of lays the groundwork for this idea of systemic oppression, uh, for this idea of oppressor versus oppressed, you know, in a very early formation. And, you know, when you read Hegel's writings, he was obsessed with this sort of language. Um, he, he viewed very similar things about God and the spirit. It's very complex. There's multiple, you know, spirits. There's not just, you know, there's not a trinity. This is not Christianity. Uh, but it, it hijacks some of the terminology in order to kind of create its own faith. But they had, you know, multiple heavens, multiple deities and, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, demiurges and all these sort of things that were part of this. One, the thing is, is it's a philosophy that can't be put on a note card. Whereas, you know, Christianity is like, we're all depraved sinners in need of a savior to be in the presence of a holy God. Yeah. And that's why God sent his own son to become the propitiation for our sins like that. That's kind of like the, in the yeah. nutshell version, yeah. it's not really an, in the nutshell version for Gnosticism, but it's uh, something you said, I, I keyed in on is secret knowledge because people that are proponents of these worldviews, it's so arrogant and so patriarchal. They're just like, Oh, I understand. Let me hold your hand as I bring you through this. Yeah. And you know, at the end of this rainbow, I'm still going to think you're a racist, but let's do the work along the way to get rid of this racism that, you know, is befalling you. But th there's a hinge point of your book that I don't know that you would call it that, but for me, it certainly was because people don't understand communism. Don't worry. I'm not going to make you define communism. They don't understand communism and they don't understand the influence of communism because everyone, even though we live in 2023, we still have this ideal that the only way America can be toppled is from the Atlantic Ocean or from the Pacific Ocean and yeah. an invasion of some kind. But you detail something that was published over 50 years ago, I mean, almost 70 years yeah. ago by W and I think it's Cleon Skousen or Skousen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I actually just want to read this quick section here because whenever I read it, I, I literally went back and I'm not a rereader. If I don't understand what happened on that page, that's in my past. I got to put my behind <laughs> in my past. I got to keep going. But I went yeah. back like, surely not because I've, I've, I've heard stuff like this before, but you lay it out explicitly. So let's go here. First published in 1958. Guys, 1958. That was a long time ago. W. Cleon Skousen, the in uh, W. Cleon Skousen's The Naked Communist, expertly exposes the patient strategies of communism to remake the Western world. Most notably, the book contains a detailed list of the 45 goals of communism. The same list gathered by U.S. intelligence was presented to Congress in 1963 by then Florida Representative Albert S. Herlong Jr., Democrat. It offers a chilling understanding of just how insidious and far-sighted the communist agenda in America is. While the list has been republished in countless forms throughout the years, two of the goals it contains are critical to understanding what's happening in Christian institutions. Rule number 17, get control of the schools. Use them as transmission belts for socialism and current communist propaganda. Soften the curriculum, get control of teachers associations, put the party line in textbooks. Does that sound familiar? And then we have rule 27, infiltrate the churches and replace revealed religion with social religion. Discredit the Bible and emphasize the need for intellectual maturity, which does not need a religious crutch. So 
45 Goals of Communism, those are the two that sound like they were written in February of this year, not in 1958. So I guess the question, Lucas, is the communists are certainly winning, but yeah. is the battle over at this point? Because they've captured the schools. The schools have been captured at this point. And the churches, I mean, they, they've got Satan's hands on their throat right now, and they don't even realize it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think it's important too, to recognize here that, that, you know, I, I think the nature of communism is kind of inspiring this, this originally this bottom down revolution, you know, kind of that this, this working class would rise up against the um, you know, this, this bourgeoisie class and, and, you know, kind of have this overthrow and the nature of communism and Marxist ideology is that um, that you can't fix a system. Because these perceived things, systemic racism, um, you know, injustice is sort of baked into the framework of the, the foundations of a particular nation or system or something like that, you can't go in there and remove it. It's like, uh, you know, it's like putting ink inside of like, you know, bread dough, like you can't get it out of there anymore in their mindset. So you just have to throw everything away or burn it and start over. And so there's no desire to improve anything. And so I, I think that, you know, I mean, to some degree, obviously, we have major players. We could talk Russia. We could talk communist China and others. We could talk about some of the, you know, uh, um, you know, kind of leftist billionaire, you know, Marxist, you know, thinkers in the world. But but I think that, you know, it's it's much more, um, uh, uh, you know, almost like free form than that. And I think that the goal is just if we can inspire people to basically tear down their own structure, then this great utopia is going to rise out from this. And you're right. They're, they're been winning in a lot of areas. Uh, I am an optimist, despite, you know, some of the, 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 the things I said at the start here. Like, mm. I do believe that, the, that God wins in the end and the church, you know, is uh, uh, has its best days ahead of it. Uh, the death of the martyrs is the seed of the church and the church thrives in persecution. And we're starting to see the church, I think, kick it into high gear because they're feeling, you know, we're feeling this, this, um, you know, kind of the the winds change. And I think that we're realizing that, like, hey, we got to get serious here. And I think more and more people are getting on board with that. But there are many institutions that have fallen and we have a lot of work to do to rebuild these things and kind of capture them back. Um, you know, we've seen some wins just yesterday, having affirmative action, you know, struck down at the, at the uh, you know, collegiate level, uh, having, you know, Roe v. Wade overturned last summer. I mean, there's been there's been several big wins that have happened. Uh, and thankfully, I mean, they're really, uh, you know, besides strong families, strong church and the Supreme Court, like there's very few things that are kind of holding this place still together. Uh, so there's there's a lot of work still to do. Well, I think there's some encouragement in that. And I'm reminded of a book by Matt Chandler that he wrote years ago called Take Heart. And it was talking about how, you know, when the church was under the most amount of oppression, it had its most growth. And part of it is because these people were having to pray the prayer, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Or, you know, and these are people that are having to hide, you know, a copy of, you know, the Gospel of John, like under the floorboards of their house, lest they be found out and then get executed. That's where the church is growing. It's not growing in the West because we've been so comfortable with Christianity. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't want to encapsulate it in so so small of a word or a phrase there. But some of the proponents, Lucas, of woke Christianity, and I would say most of the proponents, because you kind of have to in order to be a proponent of woke Christianity, they love to twist scripture to fit mm -hmm. their narrative. Now, I think Occam's razor might apply here to where it's like the the least common denominator, like the 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 least nefarious sounding thing is probably what's what's 
what's happening here. It's probably people not actually reading their Bibles. It's probably people doing univaried analysis on scripture. You know, there's yeah. this you know, a concept of attribute to ignorance uh, as opposed to attribute to malice until proven otherwise. But talk to me a little bit about how a lot of people that have your job, they walk up to their pulpits in front of their sheep that they're going to have to give an account to God someday for how they shepherded. And they say things that are literally untrue about scripture. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, I used to think that basically what was happening was um, there was just poor interpretation of the word. And what I've come to kind of believe now and see more and more is that I think that there's a lot more sincerity and a lot more thought put into what's said than just, um, you know, mistakes or ignorance or poor interpretation. Uh, and I think that part of this is is really, you know, one of the defining things for woke Christianity or the Christian left or conscious Christianity, whatever we want to call it, progressive church, is that there has been a detachment from the inerrancy of the word of God. And so, you know, if if I go kind of, if I geek out a little bit in theology here for a second, Karl Barth, you know, in, in the... Uh, you know, after after kind of escaping, you know, um, uh, you know, the war in Europe and everything that was happening, he he develops, you know, kind of a whole, you know, systematic theology. I mean, just his stuff is is you know massive and robust, and some of the hardest theological reading you can do in many ways. And and but one of the concepts that he has that I think was was done with good intention was that he separates the the person of Jesus as you know, Jesus, Lord, Savior, you know, God's word, revelation, Jesus, um, from the, the, the written word that we refer to as the word of God. And so we have kind of these two things, you know, you call the word of God, the Bible, and you call the word of God, Jesus is the word of God, you know? And so, um, and, and he kind of was the first one really to sort of peel those two things apart in, in kind of Christian history. And, and everything, I think before this, there was just a lot of acceptance of like, these things are almost synonymous that Jesus is the embodiment of the word and that the word is the embodiment of Christ when it's spoken in these things. So Bart pulls them apart for the purpose, not of, dis, of dismantling or, or diminishing the word, but for the purpose, I think, to in defense of him to elevate Christ. But when he did so, it created an opportunity for, I think, critical theologians to sort of drive a wedge in there and start spreading that even further and so for Bart, it was just this little bitty gap between the word and Christ. Um, but but after people like James Cone and modern thinkers have had their way with that, they've kind of, you know, got in there and sort of pushed these walls apart. And and it's to the point to where the word itself doesn't, it, it doesn't have to mean anything. It, we don't have to hold to scripture and verse. It's It's got... It's got. It's the story of the word. It's the high level of the word that matters. And well, as Lucas, long as we hold to the concept of Jesus, right? Well, if I can, if I can hop in here real yeah. quick, because early in the book, there were a couple of things that I was like, "That sounds funny." But you, you talk about the problems created when people don't talk about the Bible in English and they don't take it literally. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you say that those are indications of progressive Christianity, which I was with you, with you, with you. And then I was like, wait a minute, is this a witch hunt? Because you specifically talk about how people don't take every word literally. Well, Jesus in the new Testament is described as a vine and as a door. And I don't think people were knocking on him and they weren't pruning him. And then there's also a people that don't believe the earth yeah. was created in seven literal days as we experience days today, which 
I, it's, it's something people are dying for me to talk about on the show, but I'm like, it's the least interesting topic in the world to me, whether it was like a day was a million years sure. back in the day, or if it was like 24 hours. Yeah. And then you also mentioned William Lane Craig and his argument for Genesis being mytho yeah. history. I'm of the persuasion and I disagree with William Lane Craig plenty on other things. I think Genesis could categorically be mytho history as he defines it. And the Bible can still be inerrant because the Bible is full of different styles of writing and not all of it is meant to be taken literally. Am I making sense? Yeah, but here's the thing on this, Kyle, that I think it's important to understand. The Bible is, I would say, in the vast majority of cases, if if I could probably make an argument for almost every case, but I'll give it, I'll give, you know, the benefit of the doubt here, the vast majority of cases, it tells you uh, in some implication or something through how it's written stylistically where it's going. And so we're not, you know, we're not literalists in the sense that it says, you know, Jesus is a door, Jesus is a vine, that we believe that he's a vine or a door. That that's foolish. You know, nobody, nobody, nobody really holds to that framework. You know, that's that's the argument that we hear against it. What we are is we're literalists in context. We're literalists. So if if it's parabolic language, mm-hmm. then I receive it as a parable. Jesus says, "Let me tell you a parable." I don't have to believe that there was really a, a rich man and and you know he had a you know a, a servant and these things. Like I can I can receive it as a story. I can pull out the symbolism and the meaning. Um, when it comes to you know we have genealogies. We have this person mm-hmm. begat this person. This person begat this person. You know, in order to go to Genesis and say this is mytho history, you have to. You also have to go to the first chapter of Matthew and say this is mytho history because it's referencing people that are in Genesis that were, you know, believed as historical figures. We have Jesus referring to people as historical figures, and so I think that I think you know William Lane Craig. I, I there's plenty of stuff I agree with him on, plenty of stuff I disagree with him on. I think that he, you know, kind of, uh, um, you know. Uh, was over skis a little bit in this mytho history thing. And it, he was doing the same thing that was happening after the Enlightenment. I think he was, you know, whether conscious not of it or not, he was trying to stay relevant by, by you know, um, I think, you know, it, I mean, almost seemed of getting tired of have to, having to defend a, a more literal view of the first three chapters of Genesis. And he went the easy way out, you know, to, to call it mytho history. If we're questioning the first couple chapters of Genesis, um, where do we go from there? You know, and so if doubt is creeping in, if critical theology is creeping in from the beginning, it's it's very easy to start allowing that to creep in later on. And and so, you know, we we see things about scripture. It tells us when it's a story, it tells us when it's history. And I think that we receive it as as it is recording it as such. Well, I think this gets into a discussion that I had recently. So we have a, a part of the show called The Forging Table. So it's me and three other laymen going through books of the Bible, like one chapter, one hour at a time. And so we'll say things wrong and we'll exegete things improperly because we're, sure. we're basically dummies. So, okay. And so like we'll, we're doing our best here, but th- this came up during our last recording, which your interview will come out before that episode comes out. So people will kind of get a sense of what we were talking about, but we are quick Christians, conservatives, whatever, we are quick to point out circular argumentation. Uh, You know, when Matt Walsh asks uh, someone, you know, what is a woman? And they're like, someone who identifies as a woman. And he's like, yeah, what is woman? What is that? And they just keep going around in a circle. We're quick to point those things out and we rightfully point those things out. But when it comes to the Bible, this is me playing devil's advocate as a Christian, as a believer in the Bible, as the inerrant word of God. People were like, when they get asked by, you know, a skeptic, hey, why do you believe in the Bible? And it's because, uh, oh, and they'll say, oh, it's because it's God breathed. Well, how do you know it's God breathed? Uh, Because it's in the Bible. 
it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So because Paul sure. said that in second Timothy, that, you know, every scripture is God breathed. We, we just accept that. And it's not intellectually satisfying, which it doesn't have to be, but it's just not, it's not philosophically consistent. It's not intellectually honest. I guess you could even say, because you're letting the Bible read the Bible. I've heard a lot of preachers say that, let the Bible, you know, interpret the Bible. It's like that you see, you see where culture is kind I, of, I would, it gets icky. I would argue that that is the perspective of, of, and, and I get that sentiment. I understand that feeling, but I think that when you start seeing how the Bible, what, you know, um, kind of came to be, um, how the canon that, came together. Yes. Like that, that, that falls off because we don't, we don't say the Bible's God breathe because the Bible says it's God breathe. We say that, the, the, those who walked with Jesus accepted the fact that the Bible was God breathed because they were trained by Christ himself. And they, they, they were, they had this teaching from the beginning and that was demonstrated for, you know, um, you know, with basically historic evidence being passed down and then came to be canonized, not because people decided this should be in the, in the canon, but because the canon, the canon canonized itself. Everybody has this idea that, you know, in the, the Council of Nicaea that they decided the canon. That's not what they did. The canon was, it was canonized by itself. And what I mean by that is that it was, they simply acknowledged what already existed and was already universal among churches and had historic witness. And so, you know, the fact that we hold to scripture as the word of God is not because a bunch of people, you know, 300 years after Christ said, this is the word of God. It's because, it's because, you know, Irenaeus, who was discipled directly by these guys goes, this is the word of God. And I learned it from them, you know, Clement and Ignatius and these different people that we have, you know, that we have, for lack of a better term, sort of apostolic witness, you know, for the foundation and formation of these things. The more you read that, the more you see it, you know, most of my experiences in patristic history, you know, there's, there's very few kind of first 500 year documents that of, of early Christianity that I've not read personally, um, and, and studied. And so like, you know, when you see those things, the canon become, it makes it so much more reassuring because you're realizing like, this was not just something that was made up, you know, by people or accepted loosely, like this was literally passed down. And we, we are recipients of something that was, that was universally accepted by people who were discipled directly by the apostles themselves. And I think that's helpful because a lot of people in modernity, Lucas, they're being discipled by Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code or the yeah. Joe Rogan experience. And they're just like, they just kind of wave their hand. Now I give Dan Brown a pass because he wrote a fiction novel that people took as literal. It's like, you morons. Like he didn't do that. Sure. All, like, and, and he sold a bajillion copies. I think he him. had a couple interviews that didn't help him, but look, I, I, yeah. I've enjoyed the Tom Hanks movies. I've read at least one Dan Brown book. It's, it's, you know, it's fun adventure kind of reading as long right. as you recognize that it's not, you know, it's not it's canon, fiction. right? Yeah. It's not, it's not canon and it's not history either. Like right. they're, there are historical elements that are brought in to make the story kind of move along. But then you yes. have someone like Joe Rogan who just kind of waves his hand over the council of Nicaea. And then he says, Oh, it's been translated so many times. And he gives no recognition of the amount. Yeah, of no, I would love, I'm and, waiting for, I'm waiting for Rogan to call me and say, let's talk about this. And look, there's probably better people to talk about translation than me. Certainly they have a lot more academic credentials on that, but 
But, you know, even at a basic understanding, you know, this idea that like, oh, scripture was copied from a copy of a copy of a copy. Like, first of all, the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that over the Old Testament, that that Mm -hmm. is not the case. You know, we find something in 1948 that's verifying stuff that's, you know, literally thousands of years old. Um, And then, you know, we have, I mean, the amount of fragments that we have. If people have never been, I'll give a plug for these guys. Uh, The Green family did a fabulous job with Mm -hmm. the Museum of the Bible in D.C. Incredible experience, you know, and just, I mean, that was a place that I think can really, if you're not going to do the work of like grabbing books and diving into this, it's a great fast track to go, oh, wow, we have a lot more that this is based on than just a copy of a copy of a copy, you know, that's here. Yeah. So good Oklahoma shout out there, the Green family, the founders and uh, people that run Hobby Lobby. But yeah, I've heard great things about that. I haven't been able to get over there yet. I was in D.C. for like 18 hours and I wasn't able to to make it over there. I was so bored in the Smithsonian after (laughs) going to the Bible Museum. Okay, I was like, well, I was like, this this kind of sucks. Like, this is nothing compared to what I was. It was. I felt like I was at a Bass Pro Shop. It was just a bunch of stuff like like fake animals compared to like the Bible museum was interactive. I mean, just exciting was just really amazing. Well, there's your commercial. And it's like, Hey, the Smithsonian has Don Draper's suit and uh, the the museum of the Bible has the reason why we can believe that, you know, it's the word of God. Now I do want to talk about and transition into uh, particular groups or particular denominations that are looking at scripture. And then they want to sprinkle some stuff over the top of it, right? So the yeah. one that comes to mind is the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, yeah. which is making headlines on an annualized basis during the summer now, during their conventions. But they approved critical race theory, CRT, uh, to be used as, and they they worded it in this mealy mouth nonsense way as, you know, like a lens through which to view the plight of people of color in the U.S. so that we can yeah. more easily disciple to them and minister to them and blah, 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 blah. So you actually talk about this in the book. Okay, but I want to ask you as a way to tee you up. Are there any redeeming qualities or aspects of CRT that churches and ministries can use in order to minister better? Not at all. Give us the reason why. Let's go. <laughs> so, uh, first off, critical race theory was um, it was it it was built upon a foundation of Marxism. In fact, uh, uh, James Lindsay I think points this out in his book Race Marxism. He has you know a letter or writing from Richard Delgado who one of the early founders, who's part of kind of the original group, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw kind of coined the term, but Delgado was with them. Uh, I think they were up in Madison, Wisconsin, that they all got together. And Delgado refers to the group of people getting together to develop critical race theory. And it's kind of this like little think tank that they assembled and literally says, you know, it was, I think it's the direct quote is, this was a strange place to find a, a bunch of Marxists. And and so like the, the the literally the foundational members of the creation of of critical race theory were Marxists. And you'll have people today that go, oh, critical race theory isn't Marxism. According to critical race theorists, they right. refer to it as take, Marxism. Take so, them at their word, guys. Yeah, like I, I'm not in, you know, just so people know, like I, I've not read a lot of like books like mine that are trying to dismantle um, critical race theory. Most of my reading has been reading critical race theorists writings and and kind of looking at at, you know, what they say about it and then applying a biblical lens to it. Uh, And so, like, this isn't just going, oh, this is just a, you know, evangelical talking point or something. No, when you read their writings, you see that it's Marxist. Um, I I was, uh, you know, let me back up a little bit. So, you know, I, I think additionally is that critical race theory as a Christian, it robs the believer of the opportunity to suffer for Christ. I think this is one of the greatest arguments against it. Um, if if my suffering in this world is because of my skin color, my socioeconomic status, 
you know, we could throw in critical queer theory, my sexuality, my gender, um, my sexual persuasion, um, country of origin, you know, uh, any of these things. If, if my suffering and the injustice that I experience in this world is because of those things, then when can I suffer for Christ? And the answer is you can't. Because there's always this systemic system that you have to deal with. And look, I believe in systemic, you know, um, oppression. It's it's called the law of sin and death. And mm -hmm. anybody who doesn't put faith in Christ is still under that. And they are still experiencing systemic oppression. It, when you receive Christ, you actually become free of that law of sin and death. And you can experience liberation. Jesus is the liberation that every Marxist is looking for. But instead of relying on him for to be the liberation, they're pulling back in themselves because they believe as is the you know, definition of Marxism is it's man making the world in his own image. It's about man's labor, about man's work, about the craftsmanship of man's hands. And, and by nature, Marxist ideology cannot receive Christ because it is opposed to the idea of receiving something by grace through faith. It's all about works. It's a legalistic framework from the start. So this is this is what critical race theory is built upon. It divides people based upon skin color. Uh, it also has unbalanced scales. Uh, you know, the Bible speaks explicitly about this idea that, that 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 the Lord despises and hates actually unbalanced scales, weighing one person, you know, in one way and weighing another person another way. Uh, it it has this idea of um, you know uh, basically passing down guilt. Uh, the Bible teaches that you know it says that each man should live and die according to his sin. That the sin of the father shall be upon the father. The sin of the son shall be upon the son. That the the son and that you know should not be you know uh, held in contempt for the sin of his father or, or the father in judgment for the sin of his son. You know, but but critical race theory chases down that you know what we have to start looking at your ancestral line to see you know what's there and you owe me some reparations. I mean, look, I just found out I'm 55% Irish from a DNA test uh, that I had a sponsor do recently from Israel. And, and, you know, the Irish were some of the most enslaved people, you know, in, in the world, I would guess mm -hmm. from the color of your beard, you got a little bit in you as well, Good you guess. know, and, and so like, I'm waiting for my reparations, like my, my ancestors were most likely enslaved. And we just found out that Obama comes from, you know, slave owners, you know, he's got that, he, it's only President Trump that didn't descend from slave owners, the most recent studies said. So yeah. I think Obama owes me some money. That's what I'm saying here. Well, the, the thing is, is anytime you put a word before Christian, that word becomes a qualifier for Christian and usurps the word Christian. So yes. woke Christian, gay Christian, LGBTQ plus blah, blah, yeah. blah, 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 Christian. And the reality is, is yes, I am Irish. Fantastic. Yes. But I'm also Choctaw Indian. Well, guess what? The Indians, the Choctaw Indians weren't just walking around smoking their peace pipe and, you know, loaning some of their bison meat to their tribes <laughs> on the other side of the hill. If they weren't raping, pillaging, and enslaving, they were being yeah. raped, pillaged, and enslaved. And yes, the Irish, when they came over here because of the potato famine, which is where my ancestors came from, they were treated as subhuman when they got here uh, to, to different parts of New England and New York. And do, do I need to go back and petition the government of the United Kingdom for reparations for how they treated my ancestors? No. Why? Because I wasn't treated that way. But we're on the same yeah. page there, so I don't want to belabor the point. But th there's something unique about your book and about your writing that – some people don't like to do a lot of Christians do not like to do this. And it's that you name names. And so people that, you know, for some reason or another, or at some time or another have done things 
that would be in kind of the woke slash progressive Christianity category and you name them. So you name Stephen Furtick and Carl Lentz and my old pastor of 12 years, Craig Rochelle, you name Russell Moore, you name J.D. Greer, you name Eric Mason, you name David Platt, you, you just on and on and on, you name people, some that are professional pastors, some that, some that aren't. But I, I guess whenever I call out pastors on my show, I do get some feedback like, hey man, that doesn't sound very Christian-like. Like, shouldn't you have tried to talk to them in private and, you know, privately rebuke them. And don't you need to develop a relationship with these people before you have their name and, you know, their name in your mouth. And I guess it's like, have y'all read first Timothy where Paul traveled to, to rebuke Peter to his face publicly because he was being racist uh, and, you know, preferentially treating the Judaizers. And I, I guess modern Christians, uh, in addition to just being cowards that don't ever want any conflict at all, they believe the 11th commandment is be nice no matter what to everybody, no matter what. But I guess, why did you decide to name names? Why did you decide yeah. to be on their radar as being critical of some of the nonsense crap that they pulled? Yeah, yeah. You know, this honestly, this was something um, in my last book, The Christian Left. I wrote the whole book and I turn it into my publisher. I turn it in. Uh, I give it to a couple very trusted, wise friends in the, in, you know, have long standing careers in Christian media. Um, and, you know, it was only my, you know, my Christian Left, my previous book was, was kind of only the, it's like the third thing that I'd done kind of on a national level. And I wanted to get it right. You know, I'm, I, I, I'm still a fairly young guy, although, uh, you know, some days my back tells me otherwise. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, I, I want to do this right. I want to do it honorable. I, I'm not, this is not, uh, you know, you look at the title of the book, Woke Jesus, and it's really easy to assume that, you know, it's some sort of, you know, just, you know, hit piece or that it's some far right activist or something like that. Uh, I really, you know, think that what people are going to find is an attempt to be first and foremost, true to scripture and and true to my faith and and you know to the lord and so like this idea of the names when i turned in this last book the christian left i had three people come back to me that i gave it to and every single one of them said the same things they said lucas this is like the world needs this like you're you were built for this this has to get out um it's it's going to be super well received but you're missing a chapter i had literally mm -hmm. three people tell me that and i was like what is it you know and they're like we need to know who and I'm like, well, I don't want to do that. You know, like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't, you know, can't we just talk about this conceptually? And the problem is, I mean, here's the thing. Like, I was going around and, and like talking about progressive Christianity. And, and I had names in mind when I was talking about it. But somebody would go, oh, you mean, you know, this, this charismatic pastor or this guy over here or this female writer over here? And I'm like, no, no, like they might, I might disagree with them on some secondary doctrines, but those people are not introducing Marxism into the church. Like you're hating on them because you don't like certain things about them or you don't like how big their house is or something like that. But like, that's not the biggest concern right now for the body of Christ. It's these other, in fact, the, the subversive nature of progressive Christianity is why I think you have to name names. Because a lot of times we don't think that these people are there. Um, we don't think yep. that they're, they're in that space. I, the, one of the things that freed me was going back through the epistles and reading the apostle Paul and seeing how many names he actually references. You know, mm -hmm. he makes statements like, look out for Alexander, the metal worker, you know, he's caused great harm. And just so people know, there are some of these names that I reached out to for comment 
There are some of these names that I offered to send the manuscript to ahead of time, or at least sections of the manuscript to ahead of time. So they had a chance to see it in advance. Not all of them, you know, some of them I just have zero contact with. Their statements were public enough. Other people had addressed this before. Uh, I didn't, I didn't feel a personal responsibility to try to pursue a relationship. And like, look, I'm a pastor, you know, somebody just walks in my door that they don't know, or that I don't know and goes, Hey, let me tell you about all these things that you're doing wrong. You know, we, that's probably they're probably not going to get a great audience, you know, from me if if at all. You know, it's going to come from trusted people. And so now I will say this: I have friends in ministry, some of which are national names that I think are um, are drifted in this. That they're affected by this. I have pastors at a local level here. They're at major flirting. Churches. They're flirting, they're, Lucas. That's a great word for it. They're flirting with this. But uh, you know, and people go, "Why didn't you call out this person?" And sometimes my answer on why I didn't call them out publicly is because I have a relationship with them. And I'm not doing that because I'm afraid of calling them out. I'm doing that because God has me placed strategically with some people right now where I am helping them personally walk through this in a way that I believe is going to be the most beneficial that they're going to be able to recover. My hope is on the other side of this successfully. And so there are certain names that I don't call out because I believe that doing so publicly, because when I'm, and I've said these things privately to them, mm. you know, but, but, and I could have people criticize me and go, why didn't you say this person? Or why did I see a picture of you with this person? And it's because God's got me placed there. And I'm not going to ruin that moment, you know, just because somebody else wants me to, you know, kind of, you know, go crazy naming names. We have to name enough people know what you're talking about. Uh, I think some of these conversations can be private conversations with the individual. Some can be private conversations with other people. Like you and I could talk offline about a name, about mm. where they're at. Uh, but there's some names that I think are egregious enough or have enough influence or they're, they're, they're spouting off, a, a, you know, significant material that it's important that we go, no, this is I'm not questioning their salvation, but they're off base here. And, and I'm going to invite them to kind of return back to orthodoxy. Well, Lucas, earlier this year, I recorded a podcast where I gave my argument. I didn't just state it, you know, like, you know, Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy. I said that Andy Stanley was a heretic and I spent an hour laying out my argument for it. Yeah. Now you can agree or disagree, but the feedback that I wasn't going to accept was you shouldn't call him out because you don't know him personally. And I was like, that's funny because I remember you calling out a national presidential candidate you didn't like you're either pro or anti-trump pro or anti-obama yeah. and so it's like okay so publicly calling out a national figure in politics is okay but if they're a pastor they're all of a sudden off limits and i guess the thing is is for a lot of people like when i called out andy stanley some of the feedback was how do you think his church could get so big if he was a heretic if he was doing these things i was like well if you read the narrative of scripture we see this in second timothy these these uh, ministries that tickle people's ears they will continue to grow as we are in the last days and as we get closer to the end times. So if you look at the size of a church's parking lot and, and you know, the advancedness of their sound system as indications of their biblical orthodoxy or their holding to, to great theology, that's a really, really bad idea. But as all this kind of comes together, Christians are confused about what to do because, you know, I'm a, a public figure with a, you know, somewhat sizable public profile. You're the same. Like, you, you know, you've written stuff for national uh, news. You have best-selling books, like all these things. But for normal Christians out there, people that are sitting at North Point yeah. under uh, Stephen Furtick, or they're sitting at Live Church under Craig Rochelle, or they're sitting at whatever Eric Mason Church is, or you know, Elevation Church with mm -hmm. Stephen Furtick, if they're sitting in these churches and they don't know what to do because leaving is one option, 
Yeah. But you get into this a little bit, and I'm setting you up kind of short shrift here because we're running short on time. But towards the end of your book, you talk about the theological concept of you know Christus Victor and and Missio Dei yeah. and all these things that kind of give you know normal people out there a little bit of a roadmap for how to attack these things. But tangibly, logis- logistically, how do we push back, especially if it's not our church? Because Andy Stanley is not going to have to give an account for how he shepherded me because I listened to yeah. his podcast for seven or eight years. You know sure. what I mean? Sure. Yeah. It, I mean, so there's there's a couple questions here, but let me answer the practical side of this first. So uh, I think to start with, um, to the everyday Christian out there attending church, you have to know where your church stands. Mm-hmm. That is your responsibility. It, it might be the pastor's responsibility to shepherd you well and to lead well. And and we could talk about whether, you know, how they're held accountable by God for that. But but it's your, you you don't get a, a, a pass. You don't get to, you know, I don't think that, you know, we go to heaven and the Lord says, what were you doing in that place for all this time? Well, I was just trusting my pastor, you know, he, it's all the responsibilities on him. No, you, you have a job to shepherd your family. You know, that's the, that's the kind of sphere sovereignty that each person has as an adult to shepherd their family. And if you don't have a family, your job is to shepherd your own heart, you know, in that way. And so um, I, I think that you have to make sure to know where your church stands. And so some of the things that I tell people, you know, did your church cheer when Roe v. Wade was overturned? Um, is your church talking about these issues? Is it, is it addressed the transgender pride stuff? Um, did they make people repent for their skin color, you know, during the whole George Floyd thing? Like, these are all like you need to know the answers to these questions and see which side of the fence your church falls on to know if you should stay there or not. If you've if you just started attending a church and your first week there, or your third week there, or fifth week there, you know, the, the pastor gets up there and does a message and it's critical race theory laced with and, you know, uh, you know, uh, discredits the the word and, you know, diminishes any sort of view of of, uh, um, you know, authority of scripture, like just go find a new church. You don't need to, you don't need to talk to anybody. You don't need to say anything. Like don't give your money, go find some new, you know, new place. If you got, if you got five minutes, you want to write them an email and why you're not staying there. Maybe that's beneficial that they hear that it puts a little pressure on them. Um, but bottom line is they're probably not going to respond to you and, or care what you think if you've not been invested there. So just go someplace else. If you've been at a church for a while, you know, maybe you're sitting right now, you know, under, uh, you know, Furtick or, or Stanley. And I don't think that Furtick and Stanley, Stanley are at the same place. Uh, I think that, you know, in terms of ideologically, I think that Stanley is probably most likely much further down this kind of progressive rabbit hole than Furtick is. Uh, but Furtick is, is on the journey, um, you know, with that. Well, just think- before we hopped on here, Lucas, I saw where today, so we're recording this guys, we're yeah. recording this at the end of June, just today, Elevation Church, because of the Saddleback thing, they've pulled out of the SBC. That's enormous news, which yeah. it was news to me that yeah, they were yeah. even in the SBC because some of the stuff that's taught there. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know have, they were even in the right, SBC to start with. They so have that was, officially signaled that they are no longer a part yeah. of the SBC. So it seems like they're going to be going down that that path of pace. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. No, I hadn't seen that yet. So yeah, I mean, look, these guys are on that journey. They're on that path. Um, and and uh, the... I think that the other, like if you're at a church, if you're attending one of these churches, you're plugged in and you start having concerns, you need to go to your pastor or the church leaders and talk to them. Uh, And I'm not saying that you don't still leave, but you need to at least have the conversation. If you've been there for a time and you have relational equity that you've developed, I don't even like using the word equity for this, right? But (laughs) relational equity that you've developed, you know, to be able to go have those conversations, you need to ask them the tough questions and just, you know, flat out, where do you stand on critical race theory? 
Where do you stand on this? Where do you stand right. on Marxism? Right. Where do you stand on, you know, uh, the Bible is the word of God? You know, what do you think about, uh, you know, do you believe that as a Christian and as a disciple that, you know, it's acceptable to, you know, to be dem a Democrat? You know, and like yeah. I'll answer, look, I don't I think you can be saved and be a Democrat. I just don't think you can be a disciple and be a Democrat you know, as an activist, you know, standpoint, because the, these ideologies are, are apart from that. And so, you know, I, I have, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of leave the salvation issue up to God. It's not my job to judge that, but you can't tell me that you're actively pursuing the Lord Jesus as a disciple right. uh, and, and, you know, in, in kind of support these various policies. And so you need to, you know, where your church stands. We developed a website. I, you and I haven't talked about this yet. I don't think mm -hmm. called AmericanPastorProject.org. Uh, so it's okay. AmericanPastorProject.org. And on there, we have a statement of kind of biblical, you know, um, uh, basically of a, a doctrinal orthodoxy position. Uh, and it's a commitment to basically um, uh, that you're going to, you know, make a commitment to orthodoxy in your in your pulpit. Podcast hosts are allowed to sign. We define pastor very broadly for purposes of this uh, this signature. We want anybody touching Christian doctrine or Christian conversations to sign this. And the second part of it is a commitment against wokeism in your local pulpit, whether that be a digital pulpit, a physical pulpit, a literary pulpit, you know, whatever that looks like. And so uh, we've had about 400 pastors already sign this. It's growing. Uh, we just launched it here recently um, and it's picking up a lot of momentum. And I encourage people take this website to your pastor, AmericanPastorProject.org. If they're friendly, they're going to read this and go, oh, I'm on board. Absolutely. Tell me where I signed. They're going to join it. Uh, there's no money. They don't have to commit any funds. They don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. They're literally just making a commitment saying, yes, I will commit to this. It's based on upon the Nicene Creed, the Apostles Creed, very historic Christianity kind of commitment with some modern language. And, um, and, and if they are offended by it, then ask them where they stand. Hey, were you able to sign that? Oh, no, I'm going to think about it some more. I'm not sure. You know, and again, just because they don't sign it, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily woke and a Marxist. They might just be, you know, they don't know they don't know us and they don't know if they want to trust this yet. Right. But but I think that by and large, if you see a strong pushback when you present this, there's a good chance you're in a woke church. And and I think that you can use this as a litmus test as well as my book and other tools. You know, get your pastor a copy of Woke Jesus or my book, The Christian Left and go, uh, you know, or Vody's book or Owen's book or somebody else and go, what do you think about these things? You know, and have that conversation. And if they're not willing to talk about it, if they're not going to engage, if they just go, well, our job is just to preach Jesus. We don't get into the political stuff. That is a sign right there. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're woke, but it means that, you know, if you've, if you're, you know, bought the lie that, that morality is political, that abortion, sexuality, open borders, um, uh, you know, marriage, that these, you know, you know, that these are political issues. That's a deception. That's just where this starts. The, the left and the media and, 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 you know, kind of these, this Marxist undertone, they want the church to accept that all of these issues are political and then to accept the fact that as the separation of church and state, they can't talk about politics. And so therefore you can't talk about any of these issues. And that is a lie. It, it's, it's, uh, it's asinine. Uh, but too many pastors have bought into that. And, and I think have just remained silent during this time. Well, it's, it's a lie from the pits of hell, and I and I would co-sign uh, Owen Strand's Christianity and Wokeness and Bodie Bauckham's uh, Fault Lines, and I would also add Elisa Childers, Another Gospel, yeah. because she was kind of in one of those churches, and she kind of got hit in the face with yeah. some of the stuff that she grew up with, and she had to really reckon with actual biblical theology. But, you know, most people that are in churches are just content to ride the wave. They'll, they'll just go along to get along, or they'll get hung up. And they'll do a two hour long meeting with a pastor because they get hung up on infant baptism or full immersion versus sprinkling or just some 
some other little yep. thing, which is not unimportant, but it's not core to the message of what the church is bringing. Yeah. Um, but Lucas, as, as we're here about an hour in, and as we're kind of winding to a close, um, everyone's going to think, gosh, these guys are like best buddies. They said they were going to do all the, they agree on everything, but Lucas, I got breaking news for you. There was one sentence in your book that I thought was going to make me puke. And I, I need to bring that to you. And then I, let me tell you why. And then I'll give you a defense. You know, I'll give you some time to defend yourself for saying something so silly. You ready? Let's hear it. Now, it's not going to be any of the sentences. If you had to put your top 100 sentences in what Kyle got offended by, you wouldn't even have this one in there. So here we go. Additionally, it's important that, a, that as Christians, we become known for what we are for more than by what we are against. Now, the being known for what we're for and not what we're against is one of my biggest bugaboos because I've had some interviews with some people and I've had some other things and they're using that phraseology, Lucas, to yeah. never address cultural topics, to never address uh, sure. political topics. And they use that as a, as just kind of basically a stiff arm. But yeah. if you're not a moron, if you're for something, you're automatically against something else. So if I'm for sure. protecting uh, the human life growing inside of the womb of a woman, I am anti or against snuffing out that life. And, and so yeah. I guess yeah. that, that phraseology has been used by a lot of people that are on the progression, progressive Christian left. Yeah, yeah. And so I was just shocked to see that in there. Now you followed it up with a bunch of great arguments, but that just stuck out like a green hat with an orange bill. I was like, <laughs> what is he doing? But so go ahead, defend yourself. Oh, no, I, I look, I get it. And I think that when you've dealt with a history, when you've heard language like that, you know, again, if, if I, if that was a tweet from me and I didn't write this book, you should have every reason to be concerned. <laughs> Yeah. But the fact that it is in probably the most, what I would argue is the most jammed packed, like, you know, truth bomb book of this year that I can, if I can say that, like at least one of the, uh, you know, coming out of the Christian world, it's what you have to understand from my position, you know, and especially my last book, number one bestseller was the top Christian book for six months on Amazon. Um, and last in, in, in 2021, it came out. And I wrote about this a little bit in there. I kind of alluded to it and I've seen this rise up. And I think that this is, this is not the main issue right now, but it's in the back of my mind is a, a concern about where do we go from here? And that is that there are a lot of people that will read my work or they'll read Owen or they'll read Vody or they'll read Alyssa or, you know, somebody else out there and they'll go, I want to do that. And, and basically it, they become weaponized. And they, because they don't have the pastoral heart that those people that I just mentioned have, they don't have the, the, the love for others that those people have. They just have a zealousness for the truth. There's a time in a book of Acts um, and, you know, probably with short, uh, we, we don't, we don't have a specific clock here, so I'm going to take the time to find it because it's Go good. for it. Um, I'll make it the, awkward uh, if it takes you too long though. Right. I know. Right. <laughs> so, um, so in Acts chapter nine, um, this is before Saul kind of takes on this Paul, you know, um, uh, you know, language we see in verse 19, it says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name? So they kind of question him. 
And then it goes on, it says in verse 22, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. That's, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on him in the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Um, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And so Barnabas was basically defending him and says, so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecan Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. I've never heard anybody else preach on this but one person. But mm. this is the start of Saul's ministry, and it uses words like debated, argued, proved, you know, all these different things, so much so that the disciples have to go. I mean, these are the apostles. They're going, bro, you have to leave town. And the church didn't grow and prosper until Paul left. Why? Because he wasn't ready. And and this is this is not talked about enough, is that we have people that they read a book and then they go like, man, I'm ready, put me in. And they go out there with the wrong spirit and a wrong heart. And they, they basically take a pharisaical attitude. They elevate truth over grace as opposed to like mercy and grace or, you know, grace and truth, you know, one in each hand. And, and they go off half cocked and they end up doing a lot of damage for the body of Christ. And so, you know, as I'm writing, I'm not just trying to give people information. Yeah, a lot of my book is history. It's information. It's, it's details. It's definitions. That's all there. But when you get to the end of my book, and this is, I think, probably where the quote is. Uh, what chapter is that in? The one that you read? Do you yeah, remember? I think it was chapter nine or it may have been chapter 10. Yeah. So it's into the book. And this is where I'm basically trying to bring people back to a, uh, you know, uh, if I can use this term without being, you know, stoned to death here, you know, I, I view this as apostolic language. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm the Apostle Paul, but but this is this is a message for like vision for where where's the church's marching orders from here. And and, you know, I think and this brings me to kind of I think an important point is that um, that that, you know, we have to be able to discern the difference between what I would call primary and secondary doctrine in this. And, and this is not, I think, talked about enough either. There's some people that say, well, if it's in the Bible, it's primary doctrine. And I would say, yeah, every, re every true doctrine is primary. But our ability to be able to discern properly and argue every doctrine, there are there are there are primary doctrines that they define Christianity. There are apostles, Nicene Creed, or uh, apostles' creed, Nicene Creed, etc. But but these there are secondary beliefs that we can hash out. I could debate once saved, always saved. I could debate gifts of the Spirit. I could debate you know some of these different things. And I believe that that there are things that universally we accept as Christians. There are things that we regulate to denominational acceptance and that I can respect the SBC, even though I'm not a part of them. I don't necessarily have to agree with them at every single policy they crank out. I can respect, though, their sovereignty as a denomination to be able to hold those views in the same way that I can respect the Assembly of God or I can respect, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, the 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 still biblically minded version of the Lutheran Church, you know, that's out there. Like I don't I don't adhere to all of their doctrines. I'm outside of all three of those, 
But but I can respect that there are secondary issues that I want to give them the right to govern. Like even John Calvin talks about this, of that there are certain issues that are local church level issues. You know, even within those denominations, we could say, hey, this is a denominational position, but we give a local church the ability to kind of define this aspect, you know, on the nuts and the bolts as it gets getting down to like these tertiary beliefs, you know, that are there. And so this prevents us from just going on these blanket witch hunts for everybody that, you know, uh, you know, you were wearing a pink shirt. You must be, you know, uh, uh, you know, trans affirming. So therefore, you know, you were going to route you out as a pastor or something like this. And so as much as I'm the guy out there on the front line saying, guys, progressive Christianity is a problem. Wokeism has invaded. It is it is catastrophically, you know, systematically affecting these denominations. I also want to be the guy going, but don't be don't be hasty. Don't go out there and damage relationships over, you know, one sentence, one tweet. Uh, don't throw away operating in love. Don't throw away the purpose and the foremost aspects of the gospel just for the sake of a witch hunt. And so, um, you know, I, I hope that comes out in there. You know, I think that in, in the in the balance of the whole book, it, you know, for me, it 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 speaks to, you know, kind of a trying to provide some wisdom and direction for people as they take this material. Um, but just because I've seen the people that use my material and go, you know, I had a guy, you know, I'll, I'll stop after this and land the plane, but I was at an event in Florida and um, had a guy read my last book and he goes, man, I read your last book. It changed my life. He goes, in fact, as soon as I finished reading it, I went down to, it was a presidential candidate on the left's rally. He goes, I went down to that rally and he goes, I got kicked out of there because I was up on, up in their face, yelling at him the whole time. <laughs> And doing these things. And man, I was I, and he, like, he literally was pulling stuff out of my books. I mentioned this person in my book and I'm just going like, this was not, this was not the outcome I was hoping for. Right. And not so I want to make sure that we're providing, you know, kind of the whole counsel of God in this and not just equipping people to debate, you know, be good debaters. So a few things on that. So I knew you would give a good question that I just wanted to tell you, you wrote something that I thought I was going to puke. By the way, when I was typing there, it was, uh, cause my keyboard sounds like artillery is going off earlier. It was so that I could add into the show notes, the American pastor project. So that's yeah. in there now. But also I found that quote, that quote was in the very last chapter of your book. It's like in the last like six pages of your book. It's in yeah. there, uh, back in there. <clears throat> but I think that specifically in modern Christianity, even more specifically, modern Christian men, there's way too much emphasis on grace and not truth. There's way too much emphasis on lamb and not lion. And that's part of the reason why we have the ministry that we have is to swing the pendulum back. And I would never argue mm -hmm. that lamb is not important or grace is not important. I'm arguing that if you put an overemphasis on one over the other, that you are doing this yeah. wrong because Jesus yeah. was not 50% lamb, 50% lion. He's 100% lamb, 100% lion. He's fully grace and fully true. So, so that's the difference there, but you do talk about not being ready and, and we'll make this the last question of the day. Cause you got, you know, more books to write and hands to shake and babies to kiss and all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> you talked about people not being ready that they go off half cocked. They've read a book and now that book is a cleaver and they're, you know, <laughs> they're yeah. a hammer looking for a nail at this point. Like that's essentially what, what they are. But I see the same thing with Christian parents whistling past the graveyard when it comes to the education of their children. And this is what I yeah. mean. 
you will have parents because I, I tell parents all the time, you have two options for educating your kids in modernity. One vetted private Christian school. I mean, vetted just because they have a cross in the lobby yep. doesn't mean they've been vetted. So vetted private Christian school or homeschool. That's the only yep. way that you can help dictate how your kids are going to end up thinking about LGBTQ issues, gender identity or gender confusion, abortion, those types of things. So that's why I tell them. But I've had a lot of conversations with secular, not secular, but Christian parents that are like, why would I take my kids out of the public school system? That is their mission field. And what I try to get them to understand is every time we see a missionary described in the Bible, they're not minors, they're adults. And also these were adults that were equipped before they were sent. Okay. So your 13 year old daughter who's just walking around the school where they've got litter boxes in the bathroom. Yes. In Oklahoma, where they've got transgender bathroom set up against Oklahoma law. Yes. In Oklahoma. And you're just like, Oh, well that's their mission field. Like we need to be salt and light and we need to do all those things. What you're not understanding is they are ill equipped for that environment because the entire environment is weighing them down and it is a much bigger chance that they are going to implode or explode than that they are going to create revival inside of their public school. And so talk to me a little bit about education and and I'm giving you short shrift here because that's a huge subject. We could have spent the entire hour plus on this, but Christians are getting the education thing wrong and they're just blindly spending a hundred thousand dollars to send them off to a further indoctrination camp at a university, some of which they actually think are Christian. And as you detail in your book, it's not always that clear. So take that setup wherever you want to go. Yeah, no, for sure. Look, I would I would generally agree with you, but probably less dogmatically. And it, I would say it depends upon where you are in the world. So, for instance, I know of a small town here in Indiana that they have, you know, the, the principals at their schools are all Christian. Uh, it's a very small community. Uh, it's not where I live, but it's it's near here. They they pray. I mean, I you know, they I mean, I think they had five different prayers at their graduation three from adults and two from students or vice versa. Um, and and these were sincere people that love the Lord. It's a very close-knit small town. And they p- kind of just bucked, you know, the the NEA and, you know, these other groups. And they said, we're going to keep doing what we do. And they've never taken prayer out of school. Um, and it's amazing. They pray before sports games, everything else. That's a gym of a school that that I think that you could have, you know, with – it doesn't mean there's not – couldn't be problems there or that there aren't problems there – but it's it's a tremendously safer place than where most people are finding themselves in public school near them. Uh, I would prefer, and my wife and I don't have children, and so um, you know we we've we've you know I've been in this. I speak at school boards. I I've done a lot of stuff in this space. I've consulted with a lot of people. You know, reading SEL and DEI material, kind of providing expertise on that, everything else. But you know, I've not had to make this choice personally. Um, I have family that homeschools their kids. I have, you know, um, family that does not home the school their kids. I think that that homeschooling, if it's done by the right parents, is is obviously, uh, especially in the younger years, is very superior. In a perfect world, like if I could go back to school, I would go. I would find some sort of like, you know, uh, and, and again, this is you know, there these this can be expensive and everything else. But I would I would like I like classical education from a Christian worldview. You know, so where kids are learning, you know, Greek at an early age where they're getting exposed to like real history and in-depth things and and understanding philosophy early on. um, That's, you know, and that's that's like the top education that you can find if you can find it. Um, But you're right. You have to vet these things. 
Um, I was a I was advanced for my age and my faith. I you know shared early on. I started preaching very young. We didn't have a youth pastor for a time at our church, and I kind of just like kind of almost like started ministering to my peers at a young age. I was not the norm, but I will tell you that even myself, I I. I, it wasn't that I had a drift in in kind of my moral structure, but I was somebody who was enthralled by early kind of um, Christian socialism kind of captured my my eyes early on. I, I fortunately did not jump, fully jump off the cliff, but I was on my way. And even in my early 20s, that was something that was still a little bit mesmerizing. I think the inroad for me on that actually was more music. And I would actually argue probably more Christian music influence mm. than the school that I went to. Uh, it was it was kind of the Rich Mullins, you know, kind of aftermath of, of you know, kind of this hippie Christianity and what that produces and and everything that came out of that. And that that's was kind of the door that led to me. And that I, I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, badmouth Rich. I think that he was, you know, uh, did was just a tremendous artist, you know, died tragically. If he was here today, I would worry about which side of the fence he was on. He just died before a lot of this went crazy. And so, but I think he was a, I think he was an early kind of push in that direction for some people uh, that, that kind of took his ideas and abused them after the fact. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, all that to say, mostly I agree with you. There's probably a few exceptions to it, but regardless, parents, you have to be vigilant. You have to be involved. You have to know everything that is happening and what your kid is being taught uh, you know, in today's world and, and who they're with and who they're exposed to. And don't be afraid to be a little bit of a jerk. Don't set out to be a jerk, but sometimes yeah. you feel like if you're asking a pointed question that you're somehow sinning and it's like, please read the new Testament and just read the number of pointed questions that Jesus asked or the apostles asked or Paul yeah. asked, like there's a lot of pointedness in the stuff that they're doing. But Lucas, we have covered a lot of ground in the time we spent together. And there's a bunch of stuff we didn't even get into that. I, maybe we got to do another one of these. Cause I want to hey, talk I'm about open. black Jesus. I want to talk about Aryan Jesus. I want to talk about Christian nationalism, but last question of the day, are we, I don't want to ask if I'm the number one because that's kind of a high. Am I in that upper? Are we in that upper tier of, hey, of conversations you've had, or are we are we near the top? Memorable. This will be a highly memorable interview. How about that? Let's go. I will take it and I will put that on a trophy. <laughs> but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Kyle, no, appreciate it. Uh, excellent host, and uh, you really appreciate the time. If people want to find out more about me, obviously they can go to lucasmiles.org. Uh, there's pastors, churches out there interested in having me in. I do travel and speak and minister. Uh, if you're, you know, dealing with school board issues or you're dealing with, you know, some sort of, you know, uh, issue and you need somebody to take a look at stuff, uh, my team and I we try to do as much help as we can for other people that are out there. Check out American Pastor Project and uh, and absolutely pick up a copy of Woke Jesus. All of those will be in the show notes. Lucas Miles, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Lucas Miles. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to Lucas's website, a link to where you can buy Woke Jesus and his other books, and also a link to American Pastor Project. Everything that was mentioned in the interview is right there in the show notes. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self titled debut album on Face Down Records. 
The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.